Yeah, good evening. It's um, all that works a lot better than Lismore does. <laughs> you know, it's great to be it's great to be here. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity uh, to preach. Uh, before I um, start tonight, I'd like to take this time to you know thank you as a church for your prayers and for your support of Emma and myself uh, during this time. As you are aware, Elizabeth had a procedure recently, and you know, praise the Lord, the procedure was extremely beneficial. It's made her life a lot easier and it's made Emma's life a lot easier. So, you know, we're very thankful for that. So I'd like to thank you for uh, your support. I really do um, appreciate uh, that. Now, this evening, I wish to speak on a topic that is not popular uh, within the 21st century church. In fact, this subject is often treated as almost uh, taboo. Uh, one can get branded as being unloving and uncompassionate for daring to approach this theme. No, but I believe the opposite is true. No, failing to address this topic is an act that lacks love, that lacks compassion for the eternal destiny of souls is on the line. No, so tonight I wish to consider a sermon that I have entitled The Horrific Horrors of Hell. I think it will be beneficial for us to consider this coming into the Christmas season as it will remind you and I exactly that which we have been saved from. And hopefully it will also stir us to share the gospel. So our text is going to be Luke chapter 16. So please open there if you would. Luke chapter 16, we'll read from verse 19 down to verse 31. Now a text that we know as the rich man and Lazarus. So Luke chapter 16, and we'll commence reading at verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his feet full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, 
But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. But he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you and praise you for this opportunity uh, that we do have to come and meet in this uh, simple way. Uh, Father, I thank you for the privilege that I have to preach tonight. And Lord, I do pray uh, that you help me. Father, I am ever reliant uh, upon you. And I do pray this evening that you would help uh, each and every one of us um, to have soft hearts and to be willing to apply the message that you have for each and every one of us this evening. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In my preparation for this sermon, I researched uh, varying surveys from Australia, the US and the UK to determine what people thought about hell. Now, in the US, 60% believe there is a hell. In Australia, that drops significantly to around 40%, and the UK fits somewhere in between. So, although the accuracy can be debated, we can see that the existence of hell is something that is denied by well over half in Australia. But what I found particularly alarming is that the number of people who would call themselves Christians who do not believe in hell. Now, from the surveys considered, some particular denominations were included, and the results showed that 50% believe in hell, meaning the other half do not. These are church people. But what is even more frightening is that 79% of people said there was no way that they would go to hell because they were good people. Sure, they had sinned, but hell is reserved for the worst of criminals. And my friend, this is some of the deceit that Satan has skillfully sown. Now, he does not want people to know about the truth of hell, but rather he's determined to drag people down to eternal destruction. And unfortunately, many have swallowed the bait. The bait that either downplays, doubts, or downright rejects the existence or the extent of hell. Now, you and I must be careful not to take this bait, but rather consider what the Scriptures teach, as we should with every subject for the Scriptures. The Word of God is our final authority. And it is this that we're going to do tonight by using this story told by Jesus to shape a biblical theology of hell. But before we do this, allow me to fill in some details of this most unique narrative where you and I get a glimpse into the destiny of the unconverted. Now this story before us can really be broken into three parts. They've been life, death, and after death. And within these three stages, great contrast is presented. In the life stage, two very different men are presented. One is filthy rich, one is extremely poor. One is living an extravagant lifestyle, one is a beggar. The rich man has no needs, the poor countless needs. 
The rich man desired nothing, the poor man everything. The poor man was a humiliated nobody, the rich was well esteemed. So these men were at the opposite ends of the social spectrum. The rich man lived the high life, the life of the celebrities that we see on TV today. And the beggar lived like the homeless person that you and I see down the street. You know, this is the great contrast that Jesus is presenting. Oh, this poor man is identified as Lazarus. He's most likely a cripple. He's been left at the gates of the rich man, hoping to receive some charity, to receive some mercy. But this man is rejected. Oh, the text tells us he's not even given scraps from the table. But this man, he ate, he drank excessively, and yet could share nothing. You know, this man is left deserted with only the wild dogs paying him attention as they lick his infected sores. You know, what a great contrast. And yet, despite their pronounced social differences, both of these men die. And this reminds us that death is not discriminatory. It comes upon all men. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're successful or not, it cannot be avoided. It's appointed unto man once to die. And in the death of these two individuals, this great contrast continues, but now the tables are turned. But we are informed that Lazarus finds himself in Abraham's bosom, most likely a term for heaven. Here is this man, he's no longer despised, he's no longer tormented, but he's in eternal paradise, in comfort, in rest. He's no longer riddled with the putrid sores and crippling disease, but he's completely restored. He's living in heavenly bliss. But how different a scenario the rich man finds himself in. And it is his predicaments that I wish to turn our attention to. And I want to consider this text by posing and hopefully answering four questions. Are they being, is hell real? What is hell's retribution? Who are hell's residents? And how should believers respond? So question number one, is hell real? Now, obviously, when addressing this topic, this is the first question that needs to be considered. For if hell isn't real, then that finishes the conversation. Oh, there is an increasing popularity in the position that denies the existence of hell. And this is understandable on a human level, for the concept of hell is terrifying. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Oh, the thoughts that people will have this type of existence for eternity. This is heart-wrenching, and it should be. And this has led many to flatly deny its reality. In fact, the traditional doctrine of hell, now that being the eternal conscious punishment of the wicked, now is today under constant attack. The doctrine of annihilation is increasing in popularity. And within this view, there are two lines of thought. So number one, it is the view that flatly denies any punishment. 
It teaches that the human soul just ceases to exist. At death, that is it. And the second line of thought teaches that there will be some sort of punishment, but it will only be for a certain period, and then God will annihilate the individual. But the question is, what does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach annihilation, or does it teach something else? Well, let's begin by considering the text before us. Look at verse 23. It says, and in hell. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus tells us plainly and simply where the rich man ends up. And from the forthcoming description, we know that this is more than the grave, which is the argument presented from this text. People will say the rich man is just in the grave. But the description that follows this does not support that view. You know, Jesus taught hell. In fact, did you know Jesus said much more about hell than he did heaven? You know, he taught that hell is a real place. It is eternal. That is the point of the text before us. But it's not only here where the scriptures teach us about hell. You know, we could go to dozens and dozens of texts. Revelation 20:15 says, "And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." Lake of fire, a reference to hell. Mark 9:43 says, "And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched." Into hell, the fire that never shall be quenched. And allow me to share with you one more verse. And this verse is incredibly important, for it confirms both the reality and the eternality of hell. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 25. And I want to read just verse 46. Matthew 25 and verse 46. This is one of the go-to verses if you're ever talking to an SDA. It says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishments, but the righteous into life eternal. So once again, Jesus unambiguously declares the reality of hell, here calling it punishment. But I want to point out two things from this verse. Notice that Jesus presents heaven and hell together. He speaks of everlasting punishment and life eternal. So if one wants to teach heaven, then one also has to teach hell. They rise and they fall together. You can't have one and not the other. And notice also that the punishment is described as everlasting and the life is described as eternal. And my friend, this is the exact same Greek word. So if hell is not eternal, then neither is heaven. Did you get that? If heaven is real and eternal, then so is hell. Hell is as real as heaven and will last as long as heaven lasts. 
So the scriptures clearly teach the reality and the eternality of hell. But there are also further theological reasons that demand hell. And unfortunately, time restricts us from going into any great detail. But allow me to give them to you quickly. And I have five. So number one, God's character demands hell. So God is a holy God. What this means is that he cannot look upon sin. He is pure. He is completely separate from it. God is also righteous. God is just, meaning he must punish sin. God cannot be holy. He cannot be righteous. He cannot be just if there is no hell. If there is no hell, God is not who he tells us who he is in the scriptures. And that is a big problem. Number two, the cross demands hell. Now, why the cross? Why the excruciating agony if there is no hell? You know, as one author put it, Christ's death is robbed of its eternal significance unless there is a hellish eternal destiny from which sinful souls needed to be delivered. And number three, human wickedness demands hell. Now, when we sin, we sin against an eternal and an infinite God. And hence, the only just punishment is one that is infinite and one that is eternal. Number four, justice demands hell. Now, quite often, justice is not served on our earth, is it? But it will be carried out in hell. Now, there will be varying degrees of torment according to the teaching of Christ in Matthew 11.24, meaning that justice will be served. And number five, God's glory demands hell. Now, although this may sound harsh, hell will bring God great glory. Oh, punishing evil amplifies his justice and his righteousness, and it magnifies his great mercy and grace towards redeemed sinners because we don't get what we deserve. Now, my friend, hell is real it exists and it's eternal that is the testimony of the story before us and this is the consistent witness of scripture so don't believe the lies of satan so having determined that hell is real this leads us to wonder what it is like and this is the second question what is hell's retribution no, hell is God pouring out his just and righteous wrath. Think about that for a moment. That is a terrifying reality, isn't it? We consider the stories in the Old Testament when God pours out his wrath. And this is what is happening in hell. Oh, listen to how the Bible describes it. A lake of fire, a pit of darkness, bonds and chains. Unending torment, everlasting destruction, weeping, gnashing of teeth, unquenchable thirst. No rest, day or night, burning sulfur, condemnation, damnation, separation from God, 
My friend, what a devastating description that is. And yet that's, that is the destiny of the vast majority. This is where the rich man found himself in the account before us. You know, and this portion of scripture is very instructive in helping us to fathom the horrors of hell. Once again in verse 23, it says he lifts up his eyes. Now, this is an affirmation of his consciousness. He knew what was happening. Now, this was not just a state of mind, but what he was enduring was literal. He could feel the physical, the mental, and the emotional anguish. He was aware. He was perceptive. And this is true of all in hell. Hell is a conscious existence. Now, all in hell will experience consciously. It's not just a state of mind. No, the varying aspects and degrees of punishment for all eternity. Now, my friend, hell is not a light matter. The suffering is extreme. Now, allow me to explain the varying components of the suffering experienced. And this will highlight the magnitude of the horrors of hell. Now, there will be physical suffering. And this is probably the first aspect we think of. Notice the rich man, verse 23, says that he is in torments. The torments is a plural word, meaning he is inflicted with different things that cause great physical pain. This particular Greek word translated torment was used in two ways, and both are instructive. It was used firstly to describe the torture rack, and this was basically a piece of equipment where one would be bound and one would be interrogated. And if you did not give the right answers, you would be stretched until your limbs are ripped off your body. Obviously, this causes great pain. And it's this idea that is used in describing hell. The other way this word was used was describing the method to test and purify gold. And this particular process included the use of extreme heat. And hence, it's used to describe the eternal fire, the devastating fire that all will endure in hell. Now, within verse 24, we have the rich man pleading with Abraham, oh, pleading to send Lazarus with just one drop of water to momentarily bring him some relief from his unquenchable thirst and from the extreme heat that he is experiencing. Now imagine such an intense thirst, such a strong desire to receive such insignificant relief, and yet knowing this relief will never come. Oh, how brutal, how devastating. You know, my friend, the physical suffering of hell will affect all of the senses. You know that stinging feeling in your eyes when smoke from a fire smacks you in the face? Well, imagine that sting in the eternal fire. Now, imagine the great stench of the sulfur 
which when under heat is believed to smell like an extreme case of rotten eggs. Now imagine the crying, the wailing, the screams that one will hear. One can only imagine the dryness of the throat, the smoke in the mouth, and the pain that must be experienced by the sense of touch is simply unimaginable. We compound all that with the fact that there is no rest day or night. That is the physical suffering of hell. You know, imagine the most excruciating physical pain you have ever felt in your life. Imagine possessing that forever. And that is but a small taste of the torment of hell. But it doesn't stop there. There is also mental and emotional anguish. In verse 27 to the end of the chapter, the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus back in order to warn his brothers about hell. And this teaches us another aspect of the suffering. One knows that their loved ones are going to endure the same fate. Now imagine the intense mental anguish as you realize your family, your friends, your children are going to or already are suffering this same punishment. Now what emotional torment. Now the rich man was begging for a way for his family to not come to hell. And my friend, this debunks the world's joke that hell is one big party. You are not going to have a beer with Satan. That is not what hell is like. This was not the testimony of the rich man. There was no joy. There was no happiness. He was experiencing mental torture when he realized that his brothers were coming to the exact same destination. Oh, there was no joy. There was just torment. Now, the phrase gnashing of teeth is often used to describe the hell experience. And this further adds to this second component. This word speaks of remorse and it speaks of regret. Imagine an eternal feeling of gripping regret. A remorse can crush a man in this life. How greater will those feelings and pressures be? that it produces in everlasting chains. Oh, is it any wonder that Daniel 12, 2 speaks of the shame and it speaks of the self-hatred in hell. And when we compound all this with the intense guilt that one will be under, now this is seen in the fact that this man cried for mercy. A cry for mercy admits guilt. It admits deserved punishment. And what's interesting that this man never complains of it being unfair. He knows that it's fair. His conscience informs him that this is more than fair. Now put all of this together and the mental and the emotional pain is incomprehensible. And it's this that one will experience forever. The third component of suffering is that one is still a sinner. 
You know, I don't know about you, but the thing I am looking forward to in heaven is seeing Jesus and not being a sinner anymore. This isn't the case in hell. We see this before us, not once, but twice. The rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus. Now, who does this man think he is to make such a request that Lazarus should be sent from heaven to meet his needs? That this rich man still thinks he is more important than Lazarus. He still thinks that he is superior. He is still self-centered. He is still selfish. He has not changed. He is still a sinner. And this teaches us some important truths about hell. Firstly, it teaches us that hell is not remedial. And what that means is the punishment doesn't improve or cure the sinner. You know, there's no such thing as someone is in hell for a hundred years, the punishment then cures them. Now, as one author said, hell is not a hospital for the sick, but a prison for the condemned. You know, the fact this man hasn't changed also shows us that those who reject God in this life don't suddenly desire to love, to serve, and to glorify Him once they are in hell. When one is in hell, they still hate God. They are still in sin. And this is one of the reasons that hell will continue forever, because the sinful attitudes will last forever. Now, imagine being enslaved in sin for all eternity, being engulfed with hatred and bitterness forever. That is the reality of hell. Now, the fourth and final component is separation from God. And this is the greatest punishment of hell, to be eternally separated from God, to be banished from the presence of Christ, to experience the greatest divorce, not being able to do that which we were created for, that being fellowship, worship, and bringing glory to God. My friend, all of that is forfeited. One is God forsaken for eternity. You know, it is all this that is the punishment of hell, this is incomprehensible suffering in every aspect. You know, what makes this even worse? What makes this even more devastating is the fact there is no hope in hell. None whatsoever. And when we struggle in life, when everything goes wrong, there is always some sort of hope. Even if it's minute, there is always some light at the end of that tunnel. In hell, that doesn't exist. You know, there is no hope of a second chance. Verse 26 makes this more than clear. It speaks of a great gulf or a great chasm between heaven and hell. And this chasm cannot be crossed. No one from hell can go to heaven. No one from heaven can go to hell. And once you are there, there is no chance to leave which as an aside destroys the Catholic teaching of purgatory. You know, death permanently fixes everyone's destiny, whether in hell or in heaven. You know, when the fact that hell 
is eternal, ensures that there is no hope. This torment continues day and night. There's no ending. You know, I read this illustration. Imagine all the sand in this world was gathered into one big pile. And once a year, a bird came and picked up just one grain. This would take billions of years to complete. But at least there would be some minute glimmer of hope. Hell doesn't have that. You know, may we grasp just a little the true horror of hell. You know, we are so moved when we witness suffering on this earth. You know, when we see starving children or we see a city has been wiped out, we are moved and that is a good thing. But my friend, hell is magnified beyond any suffering on this earth, beyond our comprehension. How much more, how much more should you and I be moved? Oh, may the reality May the severity of hell's retribution strike deep into our hearts. And may we make sure that we will not be there. Which leads to the third question, who are hell's residents? Now who goes to hell? Who will be subjected to the eternal wrath of God? And it's here where many go wrong. How many think that they are a good person and hence they will not go to hell? But that is simply not true. How many think that God will save all people because he is a God of love? But that too is not true. Now the question we need to answer is who goes to hell? Or we could word it differently, what sends one to hell? In the text before us, it's clear the rich man is in hell. The question is, why? We must understand firstly that he wasn't in hell because he was rich. Riches in of themselves do not send one to hell. Because Abraham, in this story, was one of the richest men that have ever lived, and he was in heaven. So if it wasn't because he was rich, what was it? I want you to notice in the dialogue between Abraham and the rich man when he is pleading for Lazarus to be sent back to his brothers for he thought that if they would see one who had been raised from the dead, they would repent. Verse 30. So here we're introduced to the concept of repentance. But Abraham also goes on to explain that this miracle of one coming back would not work. And we know this is true. Do you remember? Jesus Christ raised another Lazarus from the dead, didn't he? And what was the result? The Pharisees wanted to kill him. So that wouldn't work. But what Abraham says is very instructive. He says, they have Moses and they have the prophets. These were the scriptures of that time. And they were to listen to them. And this would prevent them from going to hell. So from this we can make the deduction that something within the scriptures sheds light on who will be in hell and how one can avoid it. You know, the Bible makes it more than clear that we are all sinners. 
All humanity has sinned. Romans 3 makes this clear. And as a result of our sin, we are under the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1. Now, all humanity, every single one of us, including you, including me, deserve to spend eternity in hell. For none of us are righteous. None of us are good. We are wicked. We're depraved. We are rebellious in our natural state. Now, all mankind is hell-bound because we've sinned against a holy God, a God who must punish sin. We are all destined for eternal damnation. That's what each and every one of us deserves. And yet, God, God in His matchless grace, His infinite mercy, His magnificent love provided a way for us to be saved from the eternal punishment that we all deserve. Now, the Bible tells us of the glorious gospel message where God the Father sent His one and only Son to this world to rescue sinners, of whom we are chief. Jesus Christ came down, taking upon Himself humanity. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a magnificent statement. And this, my friend, is the Christmas story. Don't forget that. And this one, fully God, fully man, came and lived the perfect life that we never could. And he died upon that cross in our place. He bore God's wrath. He paid the price. He shed his blood for you and for me. Now he died for our sin. And yet he rose again on the third day, making salvation possible. And for one to be saved from the eternal punishment that we all deserve, we must repent of our sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, for He and He alone is the way to salvation. You know, God in His grace has revealed the horrors of hell to motivate mankind to repent and embrace the gospel, embrace salvation in Christ. And if one refuses this gift, they will go to be with the rich man. And you know, and I plead with you tonight, maybe you're a child and you have never accepted Jesus Christ, make today the day of your salvation. For you do not want to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Now the final question that I wish to consider by way of application is what should be the believer's response. For we who know Christ, and hence will be spared from God's judgment, what effect should the reality and the retribution of hell have on us? Allow me to finish with two thoughts. So number one, hell should increase our love and gratitude for Christ. Now, as we have pondered the horrors of hell, where God's wrath will be poured out, we must not forget that we deserve this. And that if it wasn't for Christ, this would be our eternal destiny. And yet, because of Christ's work on the cross, we have been spared from this. Despite being guilty, despite being completely undeserving, we have been graciously saved. Oh, meditate upon these things. 
My friend, remember what it is you have been saved from. And oh, how this ought to produce, you know, love and adoration in us for Christ should cause us to glorify and magnify our Saviour for saving us from the horrors of hell. So my friend, think upon these things every day. But particularly in this Christmas season, remember what it is that Christ came to save you from. And number two, hell should increase our evangelistic zeal. Now, the sobering reality as we ponder this topic, this is what hit home to me, is that this is the predicament that the vast majority of humanity find themselves in, on the road to hell. Family members, friends, work colleagues, neighbours, our town, our region, our state, our country, our world, my friend, there are billions in our world who are on their way to hell. There are thousands of people just in your small town of Grafton. What are you doing about it? What am I doing about it? Are you concerned? Are you burdened? Do you care for the lost? You know, we ought to. We're commanded to. And yet how often we can go day after day giving this very little thought. So may the reality of hell through the work of the Spirit cure us of any evangelistic slothfulness that may be present, of any insensitivity, of any lack of zeal that may be in our hearts and infuse each and every one of us with a sense of urgency to evangelize the lost. My friend, people's souls are on the line. We must be concerned. We must share the gospel. The Christmas season grants us with many unique opportunities to share the gospel. May the reality of hell grant you and grant me a renewed desire and a renewed boldness to share the gospel so that souls may be plucked from the fire. Let's go in the name of Christ with the help of the Spirit and rescue the perishing. For how will they be saved if we don't tell them? How will they hear without a preacher? Will you be that preacher? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, this is, you know, a terrifying reality. But Father, help us as believers to remember that that it is real. Hell is a real place. And billions of people are going there. Father, forgive us. You know, forgive us for not being as faithful in sharing the gospel as we ought to. And please help. Please help each and every one of us to be thankful every day, but particularly in this Christmas period for what Christ has done. And Father, please help us to be bold in taking the gospel opportunities that you bring our way. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
Brennan. Is that reminder? So we're going to go to prayer.